Welcome to Outbound, where we talk about strategies and tactics to help people that do business development in professional services build deeper relationships with their ideal clients. Today's episode is a little bit unique. We're not following our normal format because I have a special guest, Matt Dixon, joining me on the show today. Matt is the co-author of The Challenger Sale and The Jolt Effect, and he is a founding partner at DCM Insights. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Joseph, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So you've done a lot of research through the Challenger sale and the Jolt Effect on B2B, go-to-market, especially yep. on the business development side. Um, but you've done some research recently specifically on business development for professional services. Yep. So what led you and your team to be focusing on that, on professional services specifically, and how do you feel like that differentiates from the work that you've done in the past? Yeah, uh, great, uh, great question. So um, I'll tell, maybe start just with uh, sharing a, a personal story. I um, when I know you're familiar, Joseph, with uh, Challenger Sale, one of our, our books that we did uh, years ago in B two B sales. Um, and I remember um, maybe a couple of years after the book came out, I was uh, asked to present to the partners at a big strategy consulting firm, and um, I started my presentation I was about 45 minutes into the 60 minute challenger presentation I normally do. And, and up in the front row was the managing partner of this firm who kind of stood up. <laughs> it was very awkward, stood up. And it was like, there were hundreds of people in the room. He's like waving me off, like, please stop talking. And I was like, okay. And I, I was thinking, well, this guy hired me as paying the bill. So I took his, I said, I was gonna take questions later, but please, you've got something on your mind. So go ahead. And he said, you know, you keep talking about salespeople and selling and sales this and sales that. And what you need to understand is that our firm, we don't do sales. We don't talk about it. Like we, that's not anything we do. Like we don't have salespeople. We don't do sales. So I'm not sure how this is relevant. And I was like, geez, I wish you brought this up. Like, you know, before I got on stage, but the, the only thing called I could... the challenger sale, <laughs> I'm not I know. sure what you missed about that. Right. But the, the only thing I could think to say was like, well, let's stipulate to the fact that there's a mysterious process by which the client's money ends up in your firm's bank account. And can we just call it sales for the remaining 15 minutes? Everyone started laughing and he said, fair enough, go ahead. And I, and it, it was that early experience that actually taught me there's something different about this, this world of professional services. And I actually think, you know, joking aside, um, and as funny as that story is, when you think about what a partner does in a professional services firm, it is really different from what a salesperson does. So in a, in a B2B organization, you've got um, you know, uh, lead gen, you've got um, selling, you've got delivery, you've got account management, you've got customer success. All these are discrete functions. You know, you, you kind of pass the opportunity from one department to the next as it goes through the life cycle. But in professional services, that's one person's job. It's the partner, right? The partner's got to find the opportunity. They've got to close the opportunity. They've got to um, then deliver the work, right? And then they've got to renew and expand that client opportunity over time. So they own all that stuff. And so I, I, I really came to, we call them in the, in the article um, where the new research is uh, featured, um, what today's rainmakers do differently. That was in uh, HBR in the November, December issue. We call them doer sellers because they are not just selling the work, they're doing the work and it is a different world. Now that's a little bit of a kind of evergreen, like why is this interesting? So that's always been kind of interesting ever since that story, <laughs> that, that experience I had presenting to that strategy consulting firm. I've always thought, I'm not sure our stuff in B2B really applies directly in professional services. So when did this research, but I, I think one of the things we've, we realized as we got into it is there's a why now here that's going on, which is that 
today's clients in professional services, they're buying very, very differently from the way clients once did. You know, in professional services, I think most partners would agree that the 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 age old wisdom passed from chairperson to practice leader to managing partner to partner to associate for generations has been if you do good work for your clients and you build a strong relationship with them, they should just automatically come back to you when they have a new piece of work, when they have a new need, right? You shouldn't have to compete for it. It's all about these relationships and, and just doing good work and being client-centric and this kind of thing. But what we found in our research is that clients, they may have done that in the past, five years ago, as, as recently as five years ago, but today our research shows that only about half of clients would say that they would go back to the same service provider if that partner or firm, even if they did a good job, that they would automatically go back. And we asked them to think about how that will change five years from now. Only a third of them told us that they would automatically go back to those same partners and firms. So what's happening is it's getting a lot more competitive, right? Our clients are just less, there's not this automatic loyalty that used to exist in the past. We're going through like, you know, competitive pursuits and and procurements involved and clients are they're trying to maximize their their return on investment, right? They're looking at great dollar value uh, across boutique firms and niche providers, as well as your known branded competitors. They're looking at alternative service providers. They're thinking about alternate fee arrangements, right? This is a way more complicated and complex world than it used to be where, you know, professional services was kind of a black box. People would just put their thumb on the scale for the firm or partner that they, they're golfing buddies, right? Or they're you know, they're poker friends or what have you. It's just, that's not the world we're in today. So I think a lot of partners have realized and firms have realized that what used to work doesn't really work as effectively uh, today. Yeah, it's interesting because in professional services, for the most part, you're selling your people. And Correct, so, yeah. you know, if you're in typical B2B sales, maybe you're selling software, you're selling a software product. You're selling that product. product, yeah. Yeah. has very specific capacities. And then, you know, typically you've designed it around solving a specific problem or hopefully yeah. <laughs> putting my marketing hat on, uh, hopefully you've identified a market that has a specific problem and you're yep. selling that problem. And then you can kind of come in and identify that problem with the customer, help them to understand the problem better, and then sell them this solution. Whereas in professional services, sometimes that's the case to a degree. But a lot of times your customer doesn't necessarily know what their problem is. That's why mm -hmm. they would hire you to come in yeah. and give them your professional opinion and your, you know, consulting or whatever it, that structure yeah. looks like. Yeah. And so, you know, it does become really different when you're selling people. And I think that's part of the reason why you have that, the tendency towards relational selling. And yeah. I don't know that you could ever fully get away from that in professional yeah. services. No, it's the core of the it's the core of the sale, right? Is the, is the relationship? But I think you've hit on a couple of important points here, uh, Joseph. One is, you know, um, you in professional services, so it's one thing to sell a product, but in professional service services, you are the product, right? It, you are selling your own expertise and the expertise of your team, right? Uh, of in, it's it's really but what's between your two ears, and therein lies a second problem and second challenge, if you will, with with uh, buying professional services, which is because you're buying uh, advice and you're buying basically what's between a partner's two ears, it's very hard to assess that. It's a little bit of a black box purchase. It's not the same as buying a piece of software. You can test that, you can demo it, you can pilot it, you can do a proof of concept or buying a medical device or an industrial product that you can touch and feel and see if it meets your specifications and your needs. It's very hard to do when you're buying like a, a strategy consulting engagement or 
um, a piece of M&A advisory work for an investment bank or um, you know, legal support on a matter, you don't really know, right? You can look at that partner's credentials. You can look at the work they've done in the past. You can look at who they have as other clients. But when it gets down to it, you don't really know. You can't touch and feel that product in the same way. And so I think a lot of that as we explore this and we in, in the findings, I think, revealed that because of that, you know, as as you know very well, in the Challenger sale, we found five types of salespeople. Here we found five types of partners, which, by the way, are totally different from the five types of salespeople, which I think was part of the surprise for me personally. And, and I think validates that this is really a different market. Yeah. So before we go any further, just to level set, because I've read the the article and that's part of why we're having the conversation is it stuck out to me and, um, you know, is on the same wavelength of a lot of the things we're seeing at, at Proofpoint. Um, but for people who haven't read the article, your team at um, DCM Insights conducted pretty extensive data-backed research um, on business development in professional services specifically. So can you just give a high-level overview of the research you did so that as we continue the conversation, we've got a baseline. Sure. So it was um, we collected data from 1,800 partners um, across um, the major segments in professional services. So professional services is really big, right? You've got engineering consulting firms, you got advertising firms, you got all kinds of professional services firms out there. We uh, looked at um, uh, it collected data from 1,800 partners across law, consulting, accounting, investment banking, um, executive search slash kind of talent consulting, talent advisory work and uh, PR and communication. So those were the main areas that we studied. But I do think many of the folks who read the, the research have said, yeah, I know we didn't have engineering here. I know we didn't have uh, architecture in here, but I think the finding, because the, the go-to-market motion is partner-led, it's a doer-seller model, it's an advisory service, and it, it really does apply in many segments beyond what we studied. So we collected uh, data it, uh, through about a 45-minute survey. We asked these partners to complete that survey. Um, then for every partner who participated in the study, we asked their firm that they work for to evaluate and score that partner on their personal business development effectiveness. So it was a scaled set of questions and they were a standard set of questions for every single partner. So it was stuff like, um, you know, overall level of business development effectiveness, um, effectiveness landing new clients, effectiveness growing existing client relationships, effectiveness cross-selling the breadth of the firm's capabilities, um, how much of their total available compensation did they receive last year? You know, where did they, they rank on the bonus payout scale, if you will? And so we created this composite score. And so every single partner in the study had a unique business development effectiveness score uh, that the leaders of their firms uh, gave them or assigned to them. That, and that, that gave us sort of the, if you will, we had all the survey responses, 45 minutes of survey-based questions. And then we had the dependent variable or the outcome variable of, how good are they at professional services or at BD and professional services so that we could then figure out what of the things we asked about drove the outcomes we care about, uh, which is uh, business development and growth. Yeah. I mean, I guess you kind of already alluded to it, but what, what did surprise you most as you did that research? Cause it, uh, there hasn't been a lot of research done like this in the past. And, you know, you focus more on, again, the general B2B sales side of things. So what surprised you? I think it was right. Well, for me personally, there are two things I would say. I don't want to tip my mitt too much, but I think the first thing was um, that there were five profiles, and there are also five profiles we found in in business business sales. It wasn't four, it wasn't six, it was five that statistically came out of the model. That was kind of coincidental and interesting. But what was really interesting to me is that there were a totally different set of five, um, and we gave them different names. And actually, um, personally, and I think for those folks who know the challenger sale, what was deeply surprising to me. But then 
kind of, again, as I thought about it, I was like, well, this makes sense because it's a different thing that we're selling in professional services. The winning profile in B2B sales actually doesn't do so well in professional services. So maybe just for listeners, I'll do the hot walk through the five um, and then we can talk a little bit about you know, kind of who wins, who loses, and and why. So the the five we found, the first one was the expert partner. So um, the expert is kind of that reluctant business developer. Uh, they don't, they didn't. As one expert we interviewed told me, I didn't go to law school to be a salesperson, right? They, that's not why they got into the law. They like practicing law. They like working with clients, but they didn't do it because they like business development. So they they do it reluctantly, meaning that they end up doing it very reactively. They wait for the phone to ring. They, um, as one uh, chair, chairman we spoke to from a big uh, global uh, search firm told us, he said that the default posture of many of his search partners is they aggressively wait for the phone to ring. So th that's the expert approach, right? They aggressively wait for the phone to ring. Now, that, that's not all they do, of course. They, they like to signal to the market that they are experts. That's why we gave them this name. And so they do that through a lot of speaking, thought leadership, uh, publishing, et cetera, because they're trying to burnish their credentials and say, hey, if you are in the market for, let's say, an IP litigator in the United Kingdom, I am your person. If you are in the market for a an M and A advisor in pharmaceuticals, I am your person. And you know, they so they signal to the market that they are one of the best people in their field. But of course, in practical terms, by the time the client reaches out to you and the phone does ring, they're probably talking to several other experts from other firms, and now you're in this competitive pursuit zone. So again, it's it's very reactive kind of posture they take. The second one is the confidant. The confidant is um, best described as an old school trusted advisor, meaning um, they they have a small group of key clients and they kind of put a bear hug around those clients. They bend over backwards for them. They deliver exceptional client service. They, um, uh, they deliver great work product. And their view is, as long as I do great work for my client, and that leads to a great business relationship and ideally even a great personal relationship with my client, they should keep buying from me. Right. I should not have to compete for the next piece of work. They're just going to pick up the phone and call me because I'm their person. Right. Um, the other thing that's interesting about confidants is because they've invested so deeply in the small set of clients, they are very worried about one of their colleagues coming in and screwing it up for them. So they don't share uh, their client relationships with their colleagues. They don't share them with other partners or other practice areas. They don't put any notes in the CRM system. They kind of they hoard these relationships onto themselves. Before you go on, yeah, that that's a really interesting point. And it's funny as I've read through the profile for one, I feel like there's two that I've tended towards. I don't know which one I would end up in more. I Maybe we could talk about that <laughs> once you're going, done going through it. But with the confidant, it's interesting because I I've definitely seen that with hoarding those relationships, and you know, in in a sense, it's like the relationship is more important than the business. Which you know, I get I get why you would want to do that, but it does have really negative consequences when you're trying to grow your organization and you've got one person who's going to prioritize that personal relationship over growing the business. Yeah, and you've got, uh, I mean, most firm leaders have been preaching to their partners for years now, like get out there and collaborate and work together. And, you know, there's lots of research, including a lot of the fantastic research by uh, Heidi Gardner uh, out of Harvard Law School about how partners who do collaborate actually end up selling much more and have much stickier client relationships. It's very well documented, but firms have really struggled to get their partners to actually do it because there's still that feeling that this is a zero sum game. And, and like, if I invest in this relationship and then Joseph, I walk you in and you represent a different practice area, what if you don't do good work? And then I get blamed for it. And then I, I'm, 
I'm hosed, right? So yeah, so you got the confidant. The third one was the activator. So the activator is, um, I describe them as a super connector. So they are all about building a robust um, uh, professional network from which they can harvest client opportunities. Now, the way they do that, it's interesting. And there's a little bit of challenger in here, to be honest. It's what the way they do it is they bring new ideas to their clients. So Joseph, you may be like, let's say you're a CFO of a company and I'm a tax attorney. Um, I see it as my job to alert you to things going on in your space. So Joseph, I don't know if you caught the latest tax court decision in Minnesota, but I know your firm operates. There's a major um, area that you guys operate in. This might represent a threat or perhaps an opportunity for your firm. I'd love to hop on a Zoom and talk about it, give you my my perspective. Now, I'm not looking to charge you for that time. I'm looking to pay it forward a bit, earn some goodwill, give you a chance to test my skills as an advisor, kick the kick the tires a bit on my skills as an, as an advisor. And then, so that way, when you realize this is a need that you have, then I've got a leg up, even if you do send it through RFP and even if it, this is a comp competition, because I'm the one who took the time to alert you to this. I shared some free advice. I earned some goodwill um, and built a little bit of trust. Now, the other thing with the activator that's interesting is they are... Um, uh, they're the opposite of the confidant uh, in in the intern the way they operate internally and collaborate. Um, so confidants again they hoard relationships. Activators do the opposite. They bring actively bring their colleagues into client relationships. And part of it is just their mindset. They don't see these relationships as zero sum game. They they see they see they have a surplus view of life, if you will. They believe that when I bring a talented colleague into my client. I know they're going to do great work. And when they do great work, a couple of things happen. First of all, I get credit for that because my client says, thank you for introducing me to Joseph. He was amazing. Like, I never knew that you guys did this. That was great. We really appreciate that. But the second thing that happens is that I'm establishing more points of connection with that client. And when I do that, it becomes a lot harder for the client to just decide to go with another provider because we're helping them across lots of parts of their business, not just my specific domain area. So they try to shift the loyalty focus from me to we if that makes sense. Now, the, the fourth one is the um, the debater. Now, this one was interesting to me because it's probably the most like the challenger. They are sharp-elbowed, opinionated, know-it-all. So they come in, they like to reframe the way the client thinks about their own business. You know, let's say, Joseph, you're, you're, I'm a search consultant and you're um, running a search for a new um, uh, head of marketing for your company. And I know I'm competing against all these other search firms. And so I'm going to come in and my goal is to tell you, Joseph, you or guys are thinking about this job spec completely the wrong way. You need to be looking over here for talent, not over there. Everyone else is telling you to go left. I'm telling you to go right. And um, what I'm hoping to do in that moment is create daylight between myself and my competitors by having a very innovative, out-of-the-box point of view. Now, what's interesting, and I'm tipping my mitt a little bit to the results, um, that they actually don't do very well in professional services. And the real surprise to me was you can go in and be a debater, be a challenger if you're selling a product, right? If you're not, but if you're selling yourself, it's just an exhausting posture for your client to, you know, and clients tell us, there's a quote in the article from one client who said, look, I want the partners I hire to push my thinking and challenge me. Absolutely. Like if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. But if every time I sit down with you, you're telling me I'm doing it wrong, like I don't have time for that. That's just exhausting, right? Sometimes I just need you to do what I need you to do. So it does speak, I think, a bit before to what you were talking about, that relationship currency and how important that is in, in this, this segment. And then the last um, profile is the realist. And, and again, remember we talked about before how buying professional services, it's a bit of a black box purchase. You can't touch a professional services partner's expertise or feel it or test it or do a pilot or what have you. You're jumping, you're taking a leap of faith. Um, and I think that's why we find the realist profile. The realist is the 
totally transparent, above board, honest truth teller to the client. Now we want all partners to act that way, but they do it almost to an extreme because what they're thinking is, I know that every single client out there has been burned in the past by a partner who's over-promised and under-delivered, by that lawyer who sent the surprise invoice after the matter was concluded that was way beyond our stated budget. Like this stuff happens all the time. And so they do the exact opposite and they do it to an extreme. So they are very um, transparent around what can and can't be done, what they are good at and what they're not good at. They do not sign up for work they can't deliver on. They're very clear with clients about um, uh, expectations that they can deliver on and ones they think are a little bit outside of what can be accomplished. They're very transparent about the budget it's going to require to get to those outcomes. So, and, you know, again, tipping my mid a bit, uh, clients like the honesty, but sometimes they're also like, oh, I could use a little bit more aspirational, you know, like to help paint the art of the possible, not don't just tell me what can't be done. So those are our five profiles we found. Um, and I told you, I'd given you a little bit of an indicator about who wins and who loses, but, uh, um, but we could talk more about that in a minute. If you're in sales and using LinkedIn and you're not getting the traction you're looking for, you're going to love our Social Selling Accelerator. It's a four-week program where we work with you to create content that gets the attention of the right people and start conversations with your ideal customers on LinkedIn. Go to outboundshow.com for more information. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me is that uh, quite a few years ago, I was breaking into marketing and I started my own business just to kind of get the skills. And, you know, I was doing a lot of just basically whatever was needed. I just kind of <laughs> usually starting with some kind of creating content video or something, and then use that as a foot in the door. And then it'd be like, oh, we need help with our website or whatever. And I think I really tended towards one of either the expert or the realist. And I'm probably switching back and forth between the two. Like my, the content that I'm creating was more on the expert side. So then people would have that initial conversation because they go, oh, Joseph knows what he's talking about. But then I was around a lot of people that I felt overpromised and underdelivered, and I didn't want to be like that at all. And it was a huge frustration for me, just being like, "You guys are are making it harder for me to make a sale because you're promising something that can't be done." And then I would go into realist mode, and it was not effective. And that's why I'm not running that business anymore, right? Because it, it wasn't effective at closing deals. And I I think that it was always confusing to me because I'm like, "Look, I you know that I have the expert expertise, and you." You clearly stated that, but then also, you know, I'm telling you what's actually doable, but then you don't work with me. And I think that piece is really important about how customers really want you to inspire them on, on what's possible and push them to push the boundaries of what's possible. It's a balancing act, right? It's, and it's, it's hard sometimes to get that right. But it, look, I, I think one thing that's really important for listeners to keep in mind is there are good things about all five profiles, right? There, if you could, what you would do is you would cherry pick the very best attributes of all five and you create this kind of unicorn partner and that would be just a world beater business development approach but i mean real life doesn't work that way what we find is that every one of those 1800 partners um they may have elements of all five but they all of them spike in one of those five so so and what's interesting is because firms don't talk about business development, they don't talk about sales. It's a four-letter word in most uh, professional services firms, just like my story um, earlier on kind of attests to um, or validates. I think what they end up doing is they say when somebody grows up in the firm and they go from associate to senior associate and they finally make partner and they get a number and they're said, hey, they're told, hey, now you're shifting from just delivering the business to actually um, bringing in the business and, and uh, selling the business or developing that business. Um, it's a choose your own adventure. And I think what the data tells us is these are the five paths that people choose. 
And what was interesting is that they're they're fairly evenly distributed. Um, now, there's a little bit of a deficit um, in the debater profile in particular. So most of them, they're pretty even, except for that one has a, a lower representation. And I think partly because most of those folks have been weeded out of professional services, because again, it's an exhausting kind of, it's a tough posture to be successful with in a professional services environment. But what we found is when we took those that outcome variable, remember the uh, business development effectiveness, and we put those five profiles basically in a horse race in the data model, and we said, um, what would happen if you took your average performing partner, you know, somebody right in the middle of the distribution curve, like right in the, the 50th percentile partner, what would happen if they chose to get better at or increase their skills in any of those five um, uh, approaches? And what we found is that four of the five, uh, specifically experts, confidants, debaters, and realists, the more a partner, that middle of the road partner leans into any of those approaches, the worse they do. In other words, they are all negatively correlated with performance. And by the way, 78% of all the partners in our study fell into one of those four. So the, that leaves only one, that was the activator, was the only one that had a positive statistical relationship with performance. And not to put too fine a point on it, but if you took an average performer, an average performing partner, somebody's right smack in the middle of the performance curve, um, and they went from not very good to very good on activator skill demonstration, they could lift their personal revenue generation by up to 32%, which is a huge number in and of itself. But if you think about some of these firms with dozens, hundreds, even thousands of partners, that is game changing for a firm. And, and I think for a lot of leaders wondering, why hasn't our firm grown? Why haven't we, why do we struggle? Why are we flatlining? Why are we even declining in our market relative to our competitors? And then they look at the distribution of their partners. It's because you're probably overweighted in some of those profiles that don't do very well. And you're very underweighted in that activator approach. Yeah, or you have your your older partners who are getting ready to retire or they're taking a back seat. You're trying to bring the younger folks up and now you're diversifying out of maybe some of those people who originally started that were more activators. And then you're bringing these other other people in and they don't have that same profile. Uh, you know. The, because, I mean, it would be interesting that this isn't something that, but it'd be interesting to kind of see personality types, you know, people who start these organizations and have that mentality versus the people who come in and, you know, are brought up in the organization and the difference of profiles they would have. Well, you hit on a couple interesting things here. So I think one is, um, might make three quick points. So I think the first thing you hit on is just this idea of, you know, who's providing the guidance internally? Well, it's typically the senior partners, it's the managing partner, it's the practice leaders, that's the people who've been around for a while, right? So when mm -hmm. those associates and newer partners are looking around for advice, those are the people giving out the advice. Like, come, like, kneel by the, you know, let me tell you how I became a rainmaker. <laughs> and I think what this tells us is that what may have made those folks successful in the past isn't necessarily what's going to make partners successful in the future. And I actually think if we had done this research five or 10 years ago, we would have found a totally different answer. It might have been that experts or confidants were the winning profile. But because, again, clients are buying very differently, that's why Activator is the select for approach, we think. And we could talk more about why. A couple other points I would, I would say, sometimes people hear this and they say, well, you mentioned these activators are like super connectors, right? They're out there, they're on LinkedIn, they're they're building those networks, they're proactive with ideas and things like that. It sounds like a young partner's approach. Is it mm. true that somebody may start as an activator, but then they graduate into a confidant once they have that stable of big client relationships, or they become so well-known in the market, they can sit back and wait for the phone to ring like an expert. What we actually found is, so age was a control variable to be fair to the research, but we then dug into it and tried to see what correlation do we see in the data? And we, what we actually found is that um, there was none. So in other words, 
um, you are just as likely to find older, if you will, or more tenured and experienced activators as you are to find younger, less experienced, new in their career confidants and experts. So what that tells you is that somebody kind of picks a path and then they stick with it. They don't kind of move from one to the other. That's just the adventure or the swim lane they pick. Now, I think the last thing you you mentioned, uh, Joseph, is really, really important. Um, you know, why does somebody pick one of those paths? Now, we did not study personality, to be clear. These are not personality types. These are buckets of skills, behaviors, time spent characteristics, how people use tools and technology. So in other words, the good news here is that anybody can decide that they want to increase their activator skills. We didn't study personality. Personality, you can't change, but you can change skills and behaviors and time spent and things like that. However, it, there is an interesting question about why would somebody pick one path or the other? And I think part of it probably is about their personality. What are they most comfortable with? But I, I also think a big part of it is the signals that their own firm uh, is sending them, right? So and those signals are sent in lots of ways, not just how we pay and reward people, but also what are the who are the partners we celebrate? You know, when we bring a lateral hire from a competitor into our firm and that person's like a hard-nosed confidant who doesn't share any opportunities and we celebrate the hiring of that person, what signal does that send to your young associates who are growing up and looking around and saying, how do I become a success? Oh, I guess I should yeah. do what that person does, right? So there's a lot to the signals we send and the culture we build internally that drives our people to pick one of those paths or another. In fact, I'll tell you, when we when we do an activator diagnostic and um, uh, when we, we walk through this and a lot of firms are surprised that they have so few activators or maybe for the participants in the research, they look at it and they say, why do we have so many confidants? Why do we have so many experts? And invariably, somebody immediately after that question is asked, and usually it's the most senior person on the call says, "We guys, we did this to ourselves. If you mm. look at what we celebrate, the way we pay people, it's no surprise that we have so many confidants or that we have so few activators. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I keep talking about this for hours, <laughs> but I love it making the podcast and kind of getting towards the end here more just as practical as possible. So, you know, you've shared that clearly the activator profile is the one that's associated with positive performance and all four of the other profiles that make up 78% of partners are, are not associated with positive performance or, you know, maybe even Net, you know, with negative performance um, compared to the stronger you are in activator being on the positive performance side. Um, so what are some of the traits of an activator? And I'll just ask you this kind of com as a combined question. And then what are some practical steps that somebody can take? Yeah, to be to have more of those traits. Yeah. So uh, and, and I want to promise anybody that in a 20 minute podcast, podcast you're going to learn how to become <laughs> an activator. But let me I can I will do this. I'll, I'll give up people a couple like, you know, try this kind of things. So there there are three there were like 25 different variables that factored together to um, and, and if you will, uh, bundled together to describe the activator approach. But generally, there are three broad things that we say activators do differently. The first thing is that they commit to business. The three C's they commit to business development. That is very, again, partners in professional services, for them, sales or business development is a part-time job. And for the vast majority of partners, it ends up getting crowded out by delivery work, right, and other firm priorities. But activators are different. They, they reserve, they carve out, they reserve, and they protect their business development time, even if it's just like 15 or 20 minutes a day. We had talked to activators who said, I do my business development in the morning when I'm walking my dog, but I do it every day, right? Um, for them, it's like going to the gym. If they don't get to it in the morning, they do it in the afternoon. If they don't get to it in the afternoon, they do it in the evening. They never let it slip. Um, that is really, really important 
Because again, in a world where clients are less loyal to us than they once were, and that longtime client might pull up the tent stakes and go with somebody else, you better have a pipeline of opportunity behind that client. Um, and so that's why commit is really important. The second one is connect. We talk about activators being super connectors. And this one, I think it sounds, it might sound simple to folks. Oh, this is about being on LinkedIn and having a lot of connections and work in the room at events. And it is partly about that, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. I won't go into all the details, but this has to do with not just how you uh, build your, your, your network, but then how you leverage that network and how you deliver value uh, through that network. I, just to sum up, what I would tell you is that for activators, their network, their professional network is the most important asset they own. It is actually even more important to them than their personal pedigree or their personal experience, right? Or their personal area of expertise. It's their network because the network feeds their, it's their, they're their own marketers. It feeds the top of the funnel, right? It establishes for them opportunities to collaborate with colleagues. And we know when we can shift it from me to we, and I get more points of connection into that client organization, that's a more loyal client in a stickier client relationship, right? It allows me to not just focus on my own expertise, but to leverage my network to become a general contractor for expertise. Hey, you know, Joseph, I'm not, I'm a lawyer. I don't actually, I'm not a CPA, but good news for you is I have a number of connections in my network who are world-class CPAs specifically in your industry or for the skill set you're looking for. Let me make an introduction to, to Sandy, who I know is going to be perfect for you. I get the blowback value of that, right? Um, one of the things activators actually say, interestingly, is they pride themselves on the fact that they their clients come to them with questions which they have no business answering that are way beyond their expertise. But they come because these clients know, you know, Joseph, you might not know, but I know you know who does know, right? And you're going to put me in touch with that person and you're going to help me navigate to an answer. Now, the last one is, the last C is create. This is all about being proactive, not waiting for the phone to ring, bringing the idea to the client not waiting for the phone to ring when the client realizes they already have an opportunity. So how do I get ahead of it and then shape the client's understanding of what they need and put myself in a privileged position so that even if the client makes it a competitive pursuit, issues an RFP, I've got a leg up. Now the create piece, and this is the piece of tactical guidance I'll give everyone. The create piece has an interesting dimension is that um, we like to talk about the three dimensions of value. So there's obviously business value. You want to do good work that you know, you do what you say you're going to do and you deliver the outcomes your client cares about. There's trust value. You want to do it. Um, uh, you want to do it with uh, transparency, forthrightness, honesty, credibility, right? You want to you want to be relied upon by your client. But there's also personal value. And this is something that activators really get, which a lot of other partners don't, which is the people I'm working with. These are real people with real problems, real aspirations of their own and real opportunities they're trying to get after. And so they're always looking for that extra dimension of value can, they can deliver. So I'll give you a, a real tactical example for everyone to go and be, you know, do an activator thing this afternoon or, or tomorrow after you listen to this podcast. One of the things that you'll notice that activators do is um, they're always, they, they maintain the cadence of interaction with their networks because they know if you don't engage with your network, that relationship will decay over time. And so one of the things they look for is job changes. And there's a strategic reason for this. When a client changes jobs, the research shows very clearly that that client, let's say somebody moves from general counsel of one company to general counsel of the next company, they spend 70% of their budget in the first 100 days. So they pick all their vendors and they make all the decisions. So that's a prime window to get yourself in. But they also know that every partner out there sees that when somebody took a big job at another company, they all reach out and say, hey, saw you took a new job, love to check in. 
Clients hate that because that just comes across as like empty trolling for work. You're just looking for work, right? I know what you're doing. You don't care about me or this new job. Act, what activators do is different. So they might reach out and say, hey, Joseph, congratulations. Saw you just landed the GC job on, at Acme Company. I couldn't help but notice, but it's in a different segment or maybe just a different geography from where you've been operating in. I wonder if I could be of help because I know a lot of folks in that segment and I'd love to make some connections to you. I know as a new person in this industry, it might be hard to kind of figure out, you know, um, uh, which way is up. Right. But it might be useful for you to use some of my connections to come down the learning curve a little bit faster, make some friends in the industry. I'd be more than happy to do that for you. Right. Or, hey, I, I noticed, Joseph, you just moved to Hong Kong with your family and it's your first stint, if I'm not mistaken, in Asia. We've got a Hong Kong office. I'd love to connect you with our partners there because at the at the very least, they could tell you where are the great places to go for dinner, what schools you should be looking at for your kids, what to do on the weekends. I, always great to have some friends in town when you, when you hit the ground for the first time. So let me be of service to you. So they're always looking to be helpful. And they get a lot of pride out of that. There's a lot of personal satisfaction in, in being, and there's a, there's a well-known psychological phenomenon, right? The helper uh, bias or the helper, helper effect. And, and that's really just how activators are wired. So look in your network, see who's changed jobs, and do not reach out to them saying, hey, I saw you change jobs, let's connect. Reach out to them and see what personal value you can deliver. And you'll be amazed at the different kind of response you'll get from that client. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because uh, a few episodes ago, um, I had a... Uh, uh, local sales consultant on, um, his name's Kevin Lawson, and he's really focused on basically building your relationships with people who influence the deal versus the direct buyer. And he said something very similar to what, to what you just shared, where you have your list of people that you know are going to ultimately drive business. And, you know, they're those important relationships and to just periodically reach out to them and don't try to do anything crazy. Just essentially say, Hey, you're a, a high value relationship to me. And I want to know what's up, you know, what's going on with you and just making that personal connection. And then that turns into opportunities, not necessarily immediately. And then if one of those people changes jobs, when you reach out to them, it wasn't just right when they changed jobs. Absolutely. Brian. You know, I kind of skipped over this, but when you look at an activator network and you look at the, the, the rings of the tree, right, of an activator network, what you find is just like you said, it's not just senior executives and buyers. You might find that in a confidants network or an experts network. But an activators network is not just the general counsel, it's the AGC, it's the assistant, it's all, it's the new associates. And they make a conscious effort, not just to have a top to top connection, but to create a zippered bottom to top relationship with the client. And that means trying to look for those personal value opportunities for those more junior folks for exactly the reason you articulated. You know, you're not the check signer, but I know in today's market, the GC is gonna ask you for your opinion. And I also know that that GC might get fired because it happens all the time. And I also know that person might leave and then you might be in the senior most position or you might get a GC job somewhere else. And so I'm going to look for opportunities to help you accelerate your career. I'm not going to ignore you because I'm a senior partner of this firm and you're a lowly AGC. I'm going to spend time with you and I'm going to see what I can do to help you and help your career because I know you're going to remember that when the time comes. Yeah, no, those people do change jobs. And when they change jobs, typically they're going to move higher up. And even if it's five years or 10 years down the road, that's building your pipeline down the road. Um, well, Matt, thank you so much um, Thanks, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, for anybody listening, definitely check out the what today's rainmakers do differently on HBR. It's an excellent article. Um, yeah. Thanks again. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been great.